0: If kids want to head to reach kids, they can do that. All right. Now, we are, we are continuing in the life of David. Uh, we are continuing to walk through and look at uh, the kingdom strengths that characterize his life and his kingdom. And we come, we come in the midst of a, a hard time in the life of David. We're reflecting on um, the disciplines that God has given David in light of Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, we talked about one of those disciplines last week, and this, this week we look at another one. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me. I will raise evil against you out of your own house. This is one of the disciplines, this, this promise that the sword will, will come against David's own household. And we want to understand what the, the discipline itself, but ultimately we want to see the, the strength that is behind these disciplines, that the response to them. And in, in David's case, in this passage, we see that in the wake of, of suffering and sorrow and discipline and, and sin being heaped upon David, that he is remarkably fearless. He's remarkably fearless. He is fearless because he he knows that even in the midst of uncertainty and, and suffering and death, that he has, he has a shepherd. He has one that goes before him. He has one who has his, his life in his hands and is willing and sovereignly ordaining all things. And that from that, he gains this, this lack of, of fear that he can receive anything from the Lord's hand. And so we're going to look at that, that same fearlessness. We're going to look at the, the reason for fear. That there's legitimacy behind the fear that he has. Uh, we're going to look at his submission to the will of the Lord. And finally, we're going to look at uh, the king of fearlessness, uh, the one that David points to, Jesus Christ. And all this, this would accumulate that though we have, we have real reasons to fear, we have a shepherd who is greater. We have one who has led the way. We have one who has, has passed from death to life, from suffering and sorrow to joy, and that we, we follow him and his fearlessness. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the strengths that you pour upon us by the truths of Christ and you apply them by your spirit. Father, we ask that you would press these things into our hearts that you give us, uh, eyes to see them that we would delight in Jesus, that we would see our, our shepherd who has become the, the sheep and who has gone before us. and Father, that we would receive the, the fearlessness that he has, not trying to muster it, but that we would receive it as a, as a gift from the hand of Jesus Christ, our shepherd. Father, would you work in us? Would you use your word? Uh, would you give us um, a greater trust in the things that you're doing? through your kingdom, and by the hand of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so first, the, the reason to fear. And that's where we, we don't uh, find fearlessness by merely throwing out the possibility of anything bad happening, or any sorrows or suffering. We recognize that these are things that, that really do happen, and that there is uncertainty that stands before us. Now, in the life of David, uh, that fear... Came from the hand of his third-born son Absalom. Now, uh, the the story, the backstory behind Absalom's, um, yeah, the the backstory uh, is Old Testament complicated. Um, so I'm going to try to give it in five seconds, or this is just the, the overview. Uh, if you want to read the chapters before, they're they're intense. So uh, all right, so. Absalom, uh, he murders his half-brother Amnon because um, Amnon violated his sister. And so there's just this horrible family dynamic there. And Absalom ends up fleeing into the wilderness. And he stays there for, for a really long time and kind of, kind of weasels his way back into the court of David. Um, not in a very honorable way, but he, he manages to get there after years and years of being outcast. And we pick up the story now, now that he is accepted by King David, he is back in the court and free to kind of uh, do what he will. And what does he will? He, he plans a rebellion. 2 Samuel 15:1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. All right, so the first thing he does is get some clout so he looks important. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of it and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom steals the hearts of the people away from David, their their anointed king the king, the man after God's own heart. Now, this isn't the, the, the main plot of kind of the, the passage, but uh, we're going to take kind of a rabbit trail and focus. Okay, how did Absalom end up stealing the hearts of the people by lying about King David and by getting this, this incredibly ugly view of King David and his heart? His and then throws him, throws him and says, you know what, he's, he's apathetic, he's careless, he's negligent and he doesn't care he doesn't even he doesn't even want to listen he doesn't care about your tribe he hasn't put anyone in charge of listening to you and there's no justice for you here now of course that gives him the chance to say oh if if only i were judge and implied in that is well the judge the judge is king so if only i were king but you can't say that so he says, judge um then I would, of course, hear your call. I would give you justice. I would give you goodness. I would give you the things that you want from a king. Now, how are we supposed to take that? How are we supposed to process that? How are we supposed to apply that to our lives? Uh, Once again, who is David supposed to represent? Jesus. Good, good. Uh, Now, what does that mean, mean then? Um, The reality is that there are uh, opponents, to Jesus, as his, in His kingdom and His reign, and what do they do? They they try to steal the hearts of God's people, the people of Jesus Christ, with lies about His character. And they say, you know what? Jesus doesn't want to listen. Jesus isn't going to do anything. Or they even say, you know what? He's sovereign. He let all this happen. So don't go to Him. Don't bother. Even though David, David is sitting there waiting, like, please, please come to me, and, and Jesus is there waiting, like, please come to me, I, I offered my blood for you, I will, I will listen, I will hear, I gave my spirit so you might be united to me and might stand in the throne room of God, like, I'm working, I'm doing, I am fighting for you, I'm your advocate. And yet, if we, if we fall under these lies, the lies of the kingdom of, of Satan, or the world, or or sin, we might run after other things and say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just take care of myself. Or I'll, I'll get angry at God and, and move away from him. Maybe I'll go to other comforts and other things that will, will offer me the hope that I want. And that is how our, our hearts are stolen from our king. So I'd ask you, like, what lies are keeping you from going to Jesus. And moving towards Jesus and going to this King who, who longs to work in your life and bring justice and care and and comfort. Now, as I said, that was that's not the main, the main point of this passage. Uh, but by that, by that, by giving their hearts to this other King, they let kind of fear reign, and fear take over. And they rebel against King David, this one who loves them. And the Israelites do not. Do not cut this off at the source. Instead, they, they give their hearts away. And what does Absalom do? Verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, King David, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow that I might live at Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So after four years of of plotting, Absalom makes this proclamation, this announcement to the people whose hearts he has stolen, and he takes the kingship. He takes takes Israel for himself. Now, thankfully, uh, before Absalom can make it to Jerusalem, messengers come and, and warn David. Verse 13. The messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there might be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us. Quickly, uh, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever, my lord, the king decides. So the king went out with all of his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. That'll come up later uh, next week. Then the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted the last house. Verse 23. And all of the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. All right. So this is this is David, the king, uh, fleeing, fleeing from destruction with his servants in hand. Now we mentioned this this place name, which. The brook Kidron. Now, actually, like. I didn't believe it until I went to seminary and all the professors would talk like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a real place and you're supposed to get some meaning out of that. Uh, that's actually a big deal. This Kidron, this Kidron Valley, this brook. Now what is it? Uh, here's Jerusalem, it's kind of this square and in this western valley, or sorry, the, the eastern valley, um, runs the, the Kidron Spring and they're crossing down into this valley. And the thing that's remarkable about this valley is, uh, this valley is the place of burial. If you go to Jerusalem today, uh, you'll see the whole thing is, is white with marble tombs and, and tombstones and monoliths. And this is the burial place for the dead. And so as, as David descends down into the Kidron Valley, like he, is, he is going down the valley of death. And this is not just a, a relocation of a king. No, this is the spiritual death of King David. That the, the sins of, or the, the, the spiritual death of David is being placed upon him at this moment. As he walks down into this valley. And there's, a, there's another significance to this valley. Uh, it goes back to the day of atonement. The day of atonement, the, the way that God pays for his, the sins of his people uh, with two goats. Now, we usually talk about the one goat. The one goat is, uh, is sacrificed in the holy of holies, and we talk about the, the sacredness of that place and the, the danger of entering in and being in the presence of God. Uh, but there's a second goat, a second goat that they pour the sins of the people upon. And that, that goat is sent out into the wilderness to die. They often call it the scapegoat. And what does the scapegoat do? The scapegoat takes that same path and goes down from the temple and goes down the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Death, and out into the wilderness to die, carrying the sins of the people. And this would not have been lost on David that what is he bearing? He's bearing the, the sins of the people that they have rejected their king. They've rejected God's anointed one that they have, they have been fed lies and believed them and rejected the one that, that cares for them, the one true king. And he becomes this, this scapegoat, the sins of Israel poured upon him, leading it out into the wilderness. So we just wanna feel the, the weight of this, to know that the uncertainty for, for David's future that all these promises that we saw a couple weeks ago now hang in the balance, that spiritual death is being rained upon him. And we ask, okay, how does he respond? How do you respond with kingdom strength to all of that? And what he focuses on in the midst of all of that, he focuses on the sovereign will of God, that there is a God who is in control, and there is a God who is holding him, there is a God who is with him. Now, this, this interesting situation comes up, and it's, it's not as you would expect him to, to respond. You would expect him to, um, to cling to the presence of God and demand it. And to maybe even try to manipulate the situation, but let's look at verses 24. Uh, and Abiathar came, and behold, Zadok came also with the, all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. Remember, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. That's the presence of God. That's God's presence, that's his, uh, his place where he meets with his people. And lo and behold, these two priests come and bring it to David. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. But then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and I will see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so Zadok and Abiathar carried the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. All right, so what is, what is this? Uh, all right, if I were David, I would think, like, yes, of course, let's take the Ark. Let's take the Ark. Like, of course, I would, if, if I'm being pursued and being attacked and under the the judgment and sin and suffering. uh, Yeah, I want the presence of God dwelling with me in this box to come. (laughs) That seems like a trump card. And who's going to touch you? Who's going to hurt you? uh, What are you going to do then? And we wonder, okay, why does David not take it? Why does not David not take the Ark of the Covenant with him? And I ultimately think it's because... uh, he has a bigger relationship with God than manipulating God or, or, or forcing God to, to do his bidding. That this is kind of a power play that, oh, if I, if I take God with me, I'll steal him, and then he'll be on my side. But what does he, what does he throw? He throws up his hands and says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Now, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Um... I think in the midst of difficult circumstances and suffering and sorrows, we sometimes do try to steal the ark, and try to take the ark and take it with us. Uh, maybe we try to get God on our side, and maybe we, we read certain passages and say, you know, I think, I think God's telling me that, that he's with me, or we kind of play this, this high and holy righteous card that we might have spiritual indignation. Uh, we assume that God is on our side. And God can't possibly be on on the side of anyone else. Or maybe, maybe we, we don't claim God's presence, but we demand that God acts a certain way towards us. And we demand that God, uh, that he works things out and works the suffering out as we would will him to. And that we, we try to force God's hand. And we have a plan for how he's going to glorify himself. And if he doesn't, then we're going we're to reject him. Maybe, maybe in our desperation, uh, we want symbols and signs. We can't just trust that, that God is with us. We, we need an ark. We need something to represent that. And, and we go hunting for, for proof that God is with us and he's, he's for our purposes and our causes. Now, what does David do? He says take back the ark I'm not stealing this I'm not trying to, to get God on my side there's two options maybe I'll find favor maybe I'll find favor and God by his grace and by his, his favor not because I earned it not because I stole it from God but because he is favorable towards me he is gracious maybe then I'll come back and I will see the ark again I will stand in his presence but also maybe not Maybe not. Maybe the, the thing that I long for, the, the victory, won't be given to me. Maybe I will never see this ark again. Maybe I'll never get on the throne again. And what does he say? I will receive whatever seems good to him. I will receive whatever seems good to him. And that is, that is David's ultimate comfort, that he stands in, in the hand of God. And that this God is not just confined to a box or confined to literally a box, an Ark of the Covenant, or confined to my idea of how he might glorify and how he might work. No, I, I stand with a God who's sovereign over all things and is working all things for his ultimate purposes. And that is where fearlessness comes from. Trusting that whatever God wills, we can receive from his hand and receive it according to his purposes. Now, I think that that same heart is expressed uh, in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, this famous psalm. And I think think this is the occasion for Psalm 23. That what is David doing? David is is literally walking down the valley of the shadow of death. And he's seeing himself as the scapegoat, as the, the goat that has sin poured upon him. But even in the midst of that, what is he saying? He is saying... Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That even as he, he sees this judgment and sin and sorrow poured upon him, he still sees that God is a shepherd. That he has a shepherd who is working and who is guiding And is not just judging him and giving him terrible things but he will is still leading him beside green pastures and still waters that the kindness and the grace and the mercy of god still remains and even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me Where does his fearlessness come from? It comes from the fact that God is present and God is with him. With him as his shepherd, with him as the sovereign God who wills all things, with him as the one true king. Verse 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him, covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. All right. Now, what could I say then? I think what the, the first thing we go to is, uh, why am I not more like David? Why can't I say Psalm 23 and my heart really believe it? Why do I, why do I still get anxious? Why I, am I still fearful? Why am I? still trying to manipulate things and, and trying to get my own way. Why can't I just trust that God is working and that he really is the shepherd that he says he is? And I could say, go and be like David. Go be more fearless. Go trust more. Go be better. But once again, what, what is David pointing to? Not first to us, but first to Jesus. And this whole passage is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ of the king, of the scapegoat, of the man who enters the valley of the shadow of death. Now, when does that happen? Jesus, he he walks down the Kidron Valley. He walks down the Kidron Valley, and he sees all of the tombs before him on the night he was betrayed. And as he's walking, he had to be thinking that Soon he would be in one of these tombs. That death was coming upon him. And where was he walking? He was walking down the Kidron Valley to the foot of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. To the Garden of Gethsemane. And what was the reality? The sins of his people, the sins of his kingdom, the sins of all of Israel and all of us was being poured upon Jesus Christ. that he was being rejected by his people because we didn't trust him, we didn't want him, we wanted legalism, we wanted uh, the world, the kingdom of Rome and the, the kingdoms of this world. We had chosen better things and different things than, than Jesus Christ, the one true king. And we'd been fed the lies and we believed them. And Jesus was going down as the, the king being destroyed for us. And he was going down as the scapegoat with all of the sins of the world poured upon him. And as Jesus went to that garden of Gethsemane, as he was weeping as David did, as he was sweating blood as in more anguish than David was, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the will of the Lord. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will. And in that, what was Jesus being? He was being the perfect sheep. The perfect believer, the perfect follower of God. Who was entrusting his very soul to this God. Even unto death. He didn't go to the valley of the shadow of death. He went to death itself. And yet trusted God every single step of the way. Why? Why? So that he could do that for us. That every time we get anxious and every time we stop believing and every time we abandon our father and every time we question the will of God, we have this one who was perfect and says, you know what, I perfectly trusted for you. I perfectly trusted through the, in the course of suffering. I perfectly bore all of the judgment and all the suffering and all of the wrath with perfect faith. And I now give that to you Now, that alone would be beautiful, but then it, he takes it one step further. That this same Jesus then resurrects from the dead. He has victory over all of these things. And there's one final prophecy. There's one final prophecy that it revolves around this whole thing, the Kidron Valley. and The prophecy says that, that from the east, the, the sun will rise and the Messiah will come. And the king will come from death and from destruction and from sorrow and from the wilderness through death and through the grave and enter the city by the eastern gate, the golden gate, and he will come as king. That is the resurrection first. But it's also his second coming. He will come and he will walk through death and we will all rise with him and we will pass through the, va- the, shadow of the, the valley of the shadow of death and we will fear no evil. Now that's where, yes, we have this perfect sheep, but we also then, once he's resurrected, once he becomes king, once he rises back to the throne, we have the perfect shepherd. The perfect shepherd who leads us, and who guides us, and who leads us by still waters, and who says that, you know what, I have been through the valley, I know it, I have already died and I have been through every suffering, and now follow me. Follow me because I have done it perfectly. And do it, beca- then follow me because I know you will stumble and you will fall, but I will be with you every step of the way. And I have walked through suffering with you and for you. I will not leave you in the darkness. I will not leave you in your suffering and your sorrow. I will go with you. It's only then and only then do we ever say, what am I called to do? Only after we've seen the perfect sheep and the perfect shepherd do we say, all right, I can take up my cross. I can go into the valley of the shadow of death. I can walk through the grave. I will will enter into suffering and not run after the other kingdoms of the world. I will go with you, Jesus, because I know the way. And I have the promise that It's not like David said that maybe I'll find favor and maybe I won't. No, in Jesus Christ, we have perfect favor. And we know that we will find life. We know that we will find eternal, everlasting peace and comfort and joy as our shepherd leads us on. So, choose Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Walk with him through every suffering. Trust him to see you through. He will lead the way. He will guide you. And he will lead you to that place where you are in the courts of the Lord forever. That is all Psalm 23 ends. That is where we are all going. That's the promise. Let's trust him to take us there. Amen. Lea? Oh yeah, he's lying. <laughs> uh, it's like uh, he's saying that um, that he made a vow a long time ago that when he made it back to Jerusalem and was received by the king, then he, was, he promised to go offer a sacrifice. Oh. And so he's saying, oh, I, I need to leave so I can offer that sacrifice. And really, he just needs to go to the city so he can start the rebellion. Yeah. He's not a very upstanding guy. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, yeah, John. I, just back to last week and how, uh, I knew you'd ask this question, John. Continue. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about this week and I was thinking about the fact that you would ask that question. because uh, <laughs> I knew you would. Um <laughs> So uh it's possible, it's possible that, that um, so we've, we, we've so we sometimes talk about what's called the revealed and hidden will. So The revealed will is things that God says that he He longs for and loves. Um, but not necessarily that he'll always do. And then there's the hidden will that says that it is we don't know, it, it's what God has ordained and has planned and uh, we haven't been told what's best. And it's possible that in this in the the first case, David know or David knows that that God is a healer, that David or that, that God longs to to restore someone who's dying to life. But in this other case, he's not sure. Maybe, maybe it's better for Israel for him to not come back. Maybe it's better for the kingdom of God and the glory for him not to return, and so he throws up his hands. And maybe that's why he doesn't take the ark as well, because he doesn't, he doesn't know where this is leading and what the best outcome can be, and so he doesn't make this kind of strong plea. Um, I think he could have made the plea, but, but he doesn't. Um, does that start to answer it? Well, killing the kid was too. Sorry, that's not the best way of saying that. <laughs> Disciplining through the death of his son was, so, you know, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Yes, Brie. What does it mean by spiritual death? Spiritual death. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's different pictures of, we don't see resurrection a lot, but, we have to, we, but the Bible wants to show us the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so oftentimes the Bible uses things that, that would bring about death or look like death as a picture of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. So I think of like Daniel in the lion's den. When he goes into the lion's den, does he die? No, but he should have died. And so that's a, that's a spiritual death. It's a, it's a picture of death, even though he doesn't fully die. And so it, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a king who is fearless because we are often not. And when we are faced with with uncertainty and with suffering and sorrow, uh, we are so tempted to, to run after other gods and run after the kings and, and not follow you into the, into the valley. But Father, we thank you that you know our weakness and so you give us uh, the whole story ahead of time. You tell, us, um, you tell us the ending. You tell us that you will be victorious. You tell us that you will ride in on a white horse riding in from, the, from east to west, entering your holy city and, and bringing about justice and, and grace and favor. Father, we thank you that you were willing to, to take our sin to be the scapegoat, to be the one who was rejected, that, that we who deserved it were not. Father, we ask that you would give us greater and greater faith, strength and and really heart belief that we can trust you and follow you in any and every circumstance. Father, would you press those things into our heart by your spirit that we may worship Jesus in all circumstances, we pray in his name.